I've heard that there's a Chinese curse that goes, may you live in interesting times. Now, why would that be a curse? You know, I never really did hear an explanation and the only Chinese people I've asked have never heard of it. But nevertheless, (laughs) it makes for a good story. So may you live in interesting times considered a curse. And I think it's because, well, we're living in interesting times. And when we look around our life, we look in the world around us, we see these forces at play, the political forces, the spiritual forces, the sociological, the political, the economic, the environmental forces at play in a way that we're just a pawn in the game. We are pulled and pushed and shoved and jerked around and well, we try to do the best we can with these forces which are so much more powerful than any one individual. And because of it, we really can't stabilize, we really can't know for sure, we can't find a security in this unstable, ever-changing, tumultuous flux of, well, impersonal conditions. The curse is you got to deal with it <laughs> without knowing what's coming or when it's coming. And The Buddha talks about the experience of these forces as the eight vicissitudes of life. Gain and loss. Pleasure and pain. Fame and disrepute. Praise and blame. And these eight experiences we all we all know very well. We all have some experience of all of them. And while we all prefer and pursue the pleasant the praise, the gain, the renown of limited though it may be. We also experience the other end of the spectrum and it just cannot be avoided no matter what we do. Just because we understand that this is our condition. This is the condition of all humans to experience them. It doesn't inoculate us. It doesn't insulate us from suffering when we experience loss, pain, blame, and disrepute. George Dreyfus, a um, Buddhist scholar and translator, says, happiness is not gratification on the hedonic treadmill but a sense of well-being. What would it take to free oneself from this curse? 
Now, you know, I mentioned, I think I mentioned here, you know, a couple of months ago, people living in northern Japan, going about their lives just as we are here. In the middle of the afternoon, forces uncontrollable by any amount of human endeavor radically changed their life. If you were there, what could you do? What resources would you want to have available to call upon to preserve, sustain, maintain, or at least approach a sense of well-being? Well, it's not stuff. That got washed away. Relationships, well, everyone's in the same boat, or, or non-boat. And what, what is it that would be most beneficial at that time? The Buddha offered contingency plans for the inevitable troubles ahead when he pointed to the development of the paramis, the forces of purity in our heart, in our mind, as the source of stable sense of well-being. That bring us as close to happiness as possible in any set of conditions. And these forces of purity are the forces of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. Let's step back for a minute. Imagine you were in the tsunami and you looked around after the initial surge was kind of settled. You looked around for whoever you could see as a companion in crisis, what qualities would you most want in the person or the people that you found? Kindness, compassion, generosity, a sense of tireless effort and energy. Those who are wise and know how to, what's got to be done those who are resolute in applying their energy to do what has to be done, those who are truthful, those who are, well, not just caught up in some hysterical reaction, but have some steady balance of mind. Because we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same condition. And it's only our qualities of heart, qualities of mind, that are going to really give us a sense of not just surviving, but actually thriving and flourishing in the midst of, well, devastating conditions. These qualities that we would most want in whoever we gathered with, these are the qualities of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. In the Buddhist teachings, they're called the paramis. 
The paramis are those forces which are the forces of purity, but also the most paramam, paramount. They are the peak. They're the greatest. They're the qualities that are the pinnacle of, well, being human. Taking the potential that we all have within us and developing it to its, well, as much as we can. It is said that the ascetic Sumedha, who made the vow to become a Buddha and then lived hundreds of lifetimes in extraordinarily challenging conditions and situations, everything imaginable, in order to become a Buddha, had to perfect the paramis. Allowed himself to be born into and to experience conditions that just called forth extreme patience, understanding, energy, generosity, truthfulness. And when these forces were brought to such a peak of development that they were the default setting of the mind, the first recourse of the mind in any situation, patience instead of impatience, loving kindness instead of irritation, truthfulness instead of deception, generosity instead of hoarding. So that no matter what condition arose, one of these or all of these forces of purity would be the first impulse of the mind. This is the mind of a Buddha. This is the direction we're going with our practice. The paramis, these ten forces in, in our tradition of Buddhist teachings, these ten paramis are the foundation upon which liberating insight grows. Now I have a question for you. When you leave here tomorrow and you go to your home and you go back to your work and you join the civic dialogue or hysteria that's kind of pervading the political scene these days, do you think you're going to have an opportunity to practice patience or generosity or loving kindness or non-reactivity? Every day, we have ample opportunity. And we don't have to be sitting on a cushion with our eyes closed, cross-legged. In the tumultuous, give and take, ebb and flow of conditions in our life, we need the paramis. If we can remember that these are the practices for householders like ourselves, when not in retreat, that purify the mind and provide the foundation for liberating insight. This is what we take up for practice when we go home.
When I identify these qualities, generosity, loving-kindness, non-reactivity, patience, truthfulness, we all, we all have those qualities within us. We all have the potential for, for them. We, don't, we maybe don't always respond with them, but we've all, we've all been generous, we've all been patient, we've all been loving, we've all been understanding. And so these qualities are not remote, they're not exotic, they're not esoteric, they're not Buddhist. They are the qualities of all human beings. They are recognized in every culture. They're given lip service in every religion. And in any community, those who have these qualities, or some of them, developed to some noticeable degree, are liked. They're enjoyed. They're valuable in their cultures, in their situation. But even though we see that we know these qualities, we've experienced these qualities, we know there is a greater potential within us to develop them, we don't always take the opportunity. We forget. Conditioning habit takes over. And we don't take the opportunity to, well, develop the mind in a challenging situation. Instead, resorting to some uninformed, unengaged reaction of impatience or self-pity or blaming or just abdicating our opportunity, our aspiration really, to wake up, to take every opportunity in this life or every situation in this life as an opportunity rather than an obstacle to developing our mind. So the paramis are a potential within our heart. But by themselves, they don't automatically rise to the surface to be of benefit to us. It takes some careful reflection, and it takes a personal choice to value them, to value truthfulness over deception, to value non-reactivity over partisanship, to value generosity over self-acquisition. It's clear that in many, if not most, situations that a response from a heart filled with the paramis, or any of them, it would be a wise, good choice, rather than resorting to or falling into a reactive habit of their opposite. But to make a choice to reflect on the value of any of these qualities in our life, take some careful and repeated reflection 
on how we can bring this quality into our life, how we can remember to value these qualities. Habits are strong and our cultural, family, socio-economic class conditioning exerts a powerful effect on our choices. If we wish to develop the paramis, to remember them, cultivate them, make, try to make them the default setting of our own mind, we need to be prepared to confront our cultural conditioning. To give an example, we live in a culture, well, that values deception. And you don't have to look very far to see that we're not being told the truth, whether it's in advertising, in politics, or from Wall Street, or anywhere else. On the national scene, deception is expected, condoned, valued, but there's a cost. It makes us cynical. It makes us disengaged. It makes us withdraw from parts of our life. If you want to purify the mind of deception, that's our, that's our inner work. But we live in a world that is constantly exerting a conditioning influence on us to accept deception. And so we may find ourselves going against the stream. We may find ourselves just kind of odd person out in the groupthink, whether it's the groupthink of home or work or socially, neighborhoods or whatever. And while it might be comfortable to kind of go with the flow, to kind of fit in, that may not be sufficient for liberation. Or to take another example, currently in the States, our political uh, discourse is very shrill, very partisan, uh, hostile and, and aversive. And yet, in a democracy, we were invited to participate. How are we going to do that if we value equanimity? If we value a non-reactive but a responsive relationship to the options that are offered? This is not easy. But this is the challenge because non-equanimity is suffering. If we really don't want to suffer, if we really choose not to suffer, we've got some work to do. We've got some self-confrontation 
involved in how do we participate in the political process? How much news do you read? What does reading the news do to you in the morning? So you read your first half hour's worth of news in the day and it sets up a, well, a flavor in the mind that you go through your day with. A half hour of good, strong conditioning. And I'm not sure a half hour of sitting and watching your mind unwind would decondition it, but I'm not sure it's a one for one. So when we choose to prepare the mind for liberation, this is what we'll be doing. Asking ourselves, looking at this area of our life and asking ourselves the questions, how do I do this? And is it worth it? And what do I get from it? And what's the cost to me? How do I have to change my life? As I mentioned earlier today, I think, someone on a retreat here a year or so ago said to me at the end of the retreat like this, I want the benefit of living a Dharma lifestyle. I don't want to have to live as if on retreat. And I think we all can agree. We don't, we don't want to be silent looking down and walking slow and, and sitting six hours a day. That's not how we want to live. And there aren't many that do, even among the monks and, and nuns. They also are busy with their, with their obligations. So how are we going to you know, kind of take the best of what we've seen within ourselves from here. Calmness, clarity, understanding, open-heartedness, generosity, a kind of a, a momentum to energy, a connectivity that is unspoken but palpable. How, how do we take that home? Or how do we, what do we do at home to cultivate that while living our household lifestyle? while the paramis are a potential within us. And we can see that they are an obvious good choice. It takes practice. Even if we make the decision, yes, I want to do this. Yes, I want to become more generous, loving, balanced, truthful. It takes practice. It's not always immediately apparent how telling the truth is going to be a cause and a vehicle for your happiness. Or how practicing generosity is always going to be a source of happiness. And that's where it takes practice. Because when we have the understanding that these forces of purity really are the forces of happiness, the foundation for happiness in our life, then in cultivating them, the result has got to be, or we need to find a way to practice these qualities of heart that results in both immediate and long-term happiness. Well, we're going to have to be very mindful of the opportunities to practice any of them, the actual practicing of them, 
and a, a, an honest evaluation of the result. How did, it, how did it go? In practicing this honesty or loving kindness or non-reactivity, was I happy? Did it lead to happiness? Did it lead to more suffering for myself or others? So you can see it's not, it's not a slam dunk. And there's no textbook way of doing it. It is a, well, as they say, it's a do-it-yourself job. We have to pay attention to our life. This is mindfulness. But it's mindfulness in action. It's awareness in action in all that we do. Every interaction that we have with one another, at home, at work, at play, and in a civic discourse, is an opportunity for any or all of the, the paramis to be at least on the periphery and where possible to the front of our attention in guiding how to respond in every situation rather than to just get caught in some habitual reaction. This takes practice. It takes mindful awareness practice and a commitment and a lot of repetition. You think we're sitting here for six or seven times a day and watching your breath for a few hundred times a day is repetitive? You ain't seen nothing. (laughs) How many times do we have the opportunity to practice patience every day? When is it going to become a habit that you just automatically are patient? As I sometimes uh, divulge in in this talk, I feel like I was not born with the patient's gene. (laughs) And my wife's name is Pacencia, which means patience. Not that she has patience, but she needs patience living with me. (laughs) And it is a challenge to remember and then to find an effective way of practicing in a situation. Every situation. All of the paramis are practices of letting go. Remember the Four Noble Truths I spoke about, the truth of dukkha? And the cause of dukkha is, the Second Noble Truth is craving, clinging, grasping, holding on. If holding on is the cause of dukkha, then letting go is the practice that leads to the end of dukkha. All of the paramis are practices of letting go. They're renunciation practices. Now, when I say the word renunciation, I know the first 20 years I heard the word renunciation, it didn't sound very inviting. You know, the Buddha was an ascetic renunciate starving himself into just kind of deplorable, painful situation. That's how I thought of renunciation. And I just said, doesn't look like a path I want to follow. And then we look around our culture. And do you see any notable role model of a renunciate? (laughs) You know, 
It's not obvious, is it? And yet, we can hear from the teachings, and we can actually see from our experience here. You know, for the past week, we've been living a renunciate life, a renunciate lifestyle. We've given up our familiar family, friends, distractions, food, whatnot. And while we may not have been happy and satisfied and really blissful the whole time we're here, we do touch into something that is extraordinary. And I think you all feel it and have felt it at different times during the retreat where there really is something beautiful to be gained from renunciation, living more simply, letting go of just having everything you want and any time you want continuously. And this is not severe deprivation. This is just a modest letting go, renunciation, and yet we see the benefit. The Buddha said of renunciation, if by renouncing a lesser happiness one attains to a happiness that is greater, then those who are wise pursue that happiness which is greater. He's not saying suffer in order to be happy. He's just saying letting go of a lesser happiness, a lesser source of happiness, if it leads to a greater happiness, a more enduring, a subtler, a more powerful, a more a wiser, then those who have wisdom will let go of the lesser in order to acquire the greater. There's a famous experiment done now, 30, 30, 40 years ago. Psychologists testing children renunciation. So you had the children in a room, had a box of candy bars or some kind of candy, gave one to each child and said, this is yours, you can have it. I'm going to go away for a little while. I'll be back when I come back. If you still have your candy bar, I'll give you another one. But if you have eaten your candy bar, that's it. You don't get another one. Whereupon they would leave the room, close the door, turn around and watch the kids through the one-way mirror. Now some kids, they were really confident. I want that candy bar now. Thank you. Peeled it, ate it, satisfied. There were a few that said, you know what, I want two. Just take that candy bar, put it aside, and wait. <laughs> but the vast majority had that candy bar, looked at it, smelled it, looked around to see what others were doing, maybe even opened it, licked it, didn't, you know, just <laughs> anything to try to have it now and more later. <laughs> Sounds familiar? We have this opportunity every day. We have this same opportunity every day to let go of some lesser source of happiness or happiness, some, some activity, some behavior, some belief, something that brings us happiness. But it's impeding, obstructing a greater happiness. Do we even recognize it? Buddha was called a renunciate. 
And he did undertake years of ascetic practices after years of indulgent practice in the temple, in the the, uh, royal palaces. The way he articulated his understanding, his realization, after trying both ends of the spectrum was the middle path. Not the path of indulgent sensual pleasure and not the path of ascetic, torturous, painful deprivation. But this place in the middle where there was not a seeking of either one. This is what we're practicing here with our awareness training. Learning to recognize when we're indulging in anything. Learn when we're striving too hard, when we're obstructing, when we're causing our own body and heart-mind pain. And trying to find that place in the middle. Letting go of views and opinions and behaviors and judgments and fears and letting go of whatever prevents us from being in the middle. This is the path of renunciation. Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche, a great Tibetan teacher of the last century, articulated the high bar of renunciation when he said, Renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself not only from the immediate sorrows of life, but from the seemingly unending cycle of suffering. And with this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. Have you ever, even for a moment, felt disillusioned and weary, running on the treadmill of your life for more profit, more recognition, more status, more pleasure, more anything? We have. We have all felt just exhausted, disillusioned, ready to give it up, This is the urge to renounce. This is the seed which blossoms into a life of renunciation and the happiness that comes with it. We live in the West. We're all householders. We have jobs and careers and many of us have families, if not of our own, of extended families, one direction or the other. What does it mean to live a life of renunciation as a householder in the West? Can we even imagine it? Can we imagine that it'll be satisfying? On Maui, where we live, In the past, we've rented a facility nearby to hold our retreats. And because the facility is not really a retreat center, we have to have a lot of supplies, cushions, bells, podiums, 
cooking equipment, all kinds of stuff to uh, make our life of renunciation easier. <laughs> so, at the at the end of at the end of the retreat, we've got a lot of stuff to pack up, put in the truck, carry back to the house, and put it in storage until the next retreat. So I always invite the local sangha to come help. At the end of one recent retreat, having spent the afternoon packing everything away in the storage room, a few people were milling about and I looked around to see what was left. And I found a box of kitchen supplies over on the side. I went over to the box of kitchen supplies, I picked up a box from it and I said to my friend Duke, how would you like a box of wheat-free, dairy-free, gluten-free, sugar-free, chocolate chipless, chocolate chip cookies? You know, the renunciation cookie. <laughs> and he said, there are some things in life I can do without. <laughs> the question for each one of us is, what in life can we do without? And what in life can we do quite well without. Remember when you were a young child and you had a favorite toy, a friend, a musical instrument, a sport, whatever it was that was your obsessive activity of play, fun, enjoyment, bringing you the happiness of your life for a period of time. Where is it now? Where is that toy, musical instrument, sport, friend? It may be in the cellar, it may be in the attic, storage, but it's not in your heart. It is no longer a source of that, well, what we can now recognize as a limited happiness. We outgrew it. We dropped our attachment to it somewhere along the way and we didn't even notice it. That is how painless renunciation can be. Pain, renunciation is not always an ascetic, torturous, painful, you know, living a deprived life. It's just knowing what you can let go of and do well without. We have not stopped, stopped growing. Maybe you can think back even 10 years ago in your earlier adult years or approaching adult years. And that which was so important and so valuable and so entertaining that you now, well, maybe carry around as emotional or physical conceptual baggage. I used to be a deadhead. used to really like listening to the Grateful Dead, going to shows whenever I could. And when they toured, I liked to go as often as I could. It was great. It was just so much fun. <laughs> and it was a real group identity, if you will. And then after several years of that, I got 
interested in the Dharma and started practicing, doing retreats and, you know, listening on the side. And then one time I had the most fortunate karmic condition, conjunction of, I had a two-week retreat, the last day of which was going to be a show just a mile, just an hour away. What could be better? You go to a two-week retreat like this, calm down, open up, get really sensitive, very quiet, and then go to a show. <laughs> really get it in there. It was unbearable. <laughs> no surprise. But it was so loud and so busy and so it was terrible. <laughs> what I had not realized is that I had dropped my attachment. I just wasn't so fascinated, so obsessed, so I came to appreciate something that was a source of greater happiness. And until I recognized that I had outgrown a lesser happiness, I still listen. It's still really good music, but not like before. And until I could see that, you know what, I've outgrown this and let it go. And really let it go. Then I could really acknowledge the value of the Dharma in my life. Now I want to ask you something. What have you outgrown? But is preventing you from realizing your Dharma aspiration? You're here. You've just invested seven days of 24-7, or at least 18-7 hours a day into investing energy, interest in the Dharma, really coming to understand the way it is for you, how it really is. What have you seen that is some behavior, some belief, some friendships, some acquaintances, some obsessions that just does not support your continued Dharma growth. One of the paramis is Aditana. Aditana is the Pali word that we translate as resolution or determination. Resoluteness is one of the ten paramis, the ten perfections of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion in our mind. I want to speak a little bit about it because, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about generosity and you, you're familiar with practicing generosity. We've talked about loving kindness. We've taken the precepts, the sila and truthfulness. We've practiced equanimity. We've developed 
many of the paramis through our practice here. But this resoluteness, well, it has taken a lot of resolution and resoluteness to be here. Show up every day, do the sitting and walking, day after day, hour after hour, it takes a lot. What is it? How can it support our life? And what is it going to ask of us to perfect it? Having a resolute heart, a resolute mind, is not about being grim, striving, tight. That, that's not resolution. That's not resoluteness. It involves the clarity of mind and a decisiveness of mind that we reaffirm over and over again. When you understand the value of the Dharma in your life through your own practice, you begin to get some clarity of the direction that you need to go. That direction is your aspiration. We aspire to move in that direction towards greater calmness, greater openness, greater patience, loving kindness, wisdom, understanding, whatever, however you articulate it for yourself. Our aspiration is the direction we've come to know is of value to us and worth the effort of our practice. Aditana parami, or the perfection of resoluteness, resolution or decisiveness, is the ability to remember that and to reaffirm it as often as you can. It's not about grabbing on to some idea of the goal and then trying to make it happen. It's as simple as remembering that in any moment I'd like to be a little more patient. And when you recognize that, that's the direction we turn. Be a little more patient, a little more understanding, a little more, a little less reactive, a little more understanding. And we can do that in any moment that we remember this is the direction I've chosen to go, that Dharma practice has shown me to be a value. And in any moment, we can do that. If somebody was right there to say, hey, can you be a little more patient? We might not want to be, but we can. And that's all we have to ask ourselves to strengthen this resoluteness in the mind. Just as we see that, you know, when you practice loving kindness, metta in the afternoon for an hour, a day, for a week, it, it becomes more accessible. It becomes more familiar, becomes uh, easier to do, and you really can feel it. So too with resolution. It is a mental muscle that can be developed through recognition and repetition. And when we develop resoluteness muscle, if you will, mental muscle, it is available for us. It is available to us to use in situations where we're confronted with 
well, what might first appear to be an obstacle to our practice, an obstacle to living a Dharma lifestyle. But part of resolution is the shift in attitude from seeing challenges as obstacles to seeing challenges as opportunities. And when we are resolved to develop the mind towards liberation, there are no obstacles on the path. There's challenges, but every challenge is an opportunity. And when we welcome the opportunity, then you can be sure that you'll uh, remember the direction of your journey. These are the four resolves, the Buddha said. The resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. One should not neglect wisdom. One should preserve the truth. One should cultivate generosity. And one should train in peace. Like any other practice, any other Dharma practice that we undertake, the hindrances, the defilements, they appear. They obstruct our, in this case, our resolution. The reaffirmation of our, of our aspiration. Whether it's attachment or doubt or fear or restlessness or wavering, we know how hard it is to keep or to reaffirm our aspiration. You know, just we get tired and the body's in pain and the mind is all over the shop. It's hard to remember that we're, this is part of the journey towards awakening, towards perfecting these qualities of purity in the mind. After I'd done one two-week retreat, my first two-week retreat, only practice, I went on staff at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts back in 78. And I was reminded now several years ago by um, another staff member that was on staff at the time. One of my first days uh, on site working, we were insulating the ceiling of one of the dormitories, the Catskills dormitory, for those of you who've been to IMS, up in the crawl space, putting insulation so to try to keep the place warmer during the winter. And now remember, I'd had a whole two weeks of practice, and I was having a discussion with Rodney Smith, the other staff member, about Nibbana, as if we knew anything about it. And Rodney reminded me a while ago that I said then, which I had totally forgotten, I have no doubt that in this lifetime I will realize the Dharma. I had no idea what I was talking about, but, but I was resolved that that was the direction that I was going. I had no idea the path ahead, how steep, how challenging, how difficult, how rewarding it would be. 
clarity of aspiration does not depend on what you know. It depends on what you feel. What you know in your heart is right. And we've all been here for a week purifying our heart, getting a, f a more substantial meal of knowing for ourselves. This is our true heart's joy. This is our true heart's direction. This is our true heart's aspiration. We'll forget. We'll dismiss it. We'll doubt it. But it'll come back. You know, they say the, you know, the space shuttle that they send up from Florida and it goes up and after, you know, kind of traveling around for a couple of days, it arrives at the space station. I've heard it said that something like 98% of the time, the space shuttle is off course. It's not headed towards, you know. But, nevertheless, it still arrives at its destination. And it does it by innumerable mid-course corrections. Our practice is like that. 98% of the time you can expect to be off course. <laughs> but if you recognize that you're off course and you make the mid-course correction, you will reach the goal. The aspiration will be fulfilled. This is the power of resoluteness. If you take the clarity of what you're seeing in your heart on this retreat, And you recognize the value of it to you. Articulate it to yourself as best you can as your aspiration. There is no one that can stop you from realizing it. If you aspire and you fulfill the causes of that aspiration, the result has to arrive and no one can stop you. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. These are the four resolves. The resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, 
the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. One should not neglect wisdom. One should preserve the truth. One should cultivate generosity, and one should train in peace, the Buddha said. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.